want you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Let me say welcome to all of you, especially those of you who are first-time guests. My name is Johnny Pereira. I'm the lead pastor here. I have the privilege of being able to be that here at this church, and we are so glad that you're here. We know it's not easy to come into a new place that you've never been before, and some of you may not have even heard of Harvest before, and you're like, where did this church all of a sudden pop up? And so we've been in this building now for, this is our eighth week in this building, and we're so glad to be here in this area of Winston. So welcome if you are brand new. And if you are brand new, we've been in this series that we've entitled Anchored. We're walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Philippians, really answering this idea. How do you and I experience stability in the midst of rough waters? Because we're looking at a book and we're walking verse by verse through a book that communicates to us through God's instrument, Paul, what it looks like to have stability, what it looks like to be spiritually mature, if we're going to use that as another word, if we're going to use even another synonym, what does it look like to have joy in the midst of difficult circumstances in our life? And so we've been looking at that every week, and we find ourselves now in Philippians 3, 1 through 11. So if you're there, say you're there. All right, we're going to begin reading, and I'm actually going to read through this entire passage of Scripture, 1 through 11, uh, as we get started this morning. And before I read, I know you were ready, but before I read, I think it's important that we remind ourselves what we're about to read in the context in which we find ourselves in this book, especially if this is your first week here and you're like, you've just jumped into Philippians 3. Paul is writing this epistle, this letter to the church at Philippi while he's in prison in Rome. That's where he's writing this. The first time he finds himself in prison in Rome. And remember, he's not sure if he's going to be released. He doesn't know when he's going to be executed. Like we know the, that, that this is not the end for Paul, but Paul did not know that. He, he was not aware what would happen tomorrow had no idea of that whatsoever. And I think it's interesting that Paul's gonna give a warning here to the church at Philippi that we're gonna see here in just a moment when we read these verses. But I want you to notice what he warns them about. When we read this, look at what he warns them to be careful of. So let's begin reading now that you are ready, and I know you were ready, but let's look at verse one. It says, finally, which literally has the idea of so then. You ever have a pastor or a preacher? I've probably done this, where they're like, and lastly, and then they go on for another 30 minutes, right, (laughs) right? Finally, well, Paul's a preacher, right? And so he says, finally, but that's not the last time he says finally in this letter, So finally doesn't necessarily mean here, okay, now I'm about to close up shop. It's literally so then, remember, so then, based on everything that we see in Philippians 2 and how we're supposed to walk with humility and and, and how we're supposed to work out our salvation, Paul says, finally, so so then, like I'm not closing yet, so then, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Where's Paul writing this? Say it out loud. And he's saying rejoice. Let me just quickly give you a definition of joy. Joy is a supernatural delight in God and God's goodness. That's joy. And Paul says here, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. Like I'm not not like put out because I'm telling you to rejoice and that I'm writing this letter and I don't want you to feel sorry for me. He says, To write these things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now look at what he says, verse two. Look out for the dogs. We'll explain what that means here in a little bit. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now here's what... Here's something that I think we take for granted. If, you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've grown up in the church, or you've been a part of the church for a while. Like if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, or you're brand new in your faith and you read a lot of the New Testament, you're like, dude, they talk a lot about circumcision. 
What's the deal with that? And if you have like grown up in the church and, or, or you've been a believer for a while, you know that that was something that in the Old Testament that God called Abraham to do, the, the father of the nation of Israel. And it's something that the children of Israel do, did to their male sons to set them apart as a marker that they were a set apart people of God. But if you don't know that and you look and read the New Testament especially, you're like, man, what is the deal? So, so Paul mentions that here. He, he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, like there's still this Jewish remnant that's saying, yeah, you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but you also still need to be circumcised to show that you're a set-apart people of God. And what Paul is saying here is, no, 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 that's adding to the gospel. We know we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. That's not necessary. We've been circumcised spiritually. Our hearts have been changed. We're set apart by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Just as a side note, if you want to write this in your margin next to that phrase, you're like, man, I have no idea why they keep talking about this so much. Write Colossians 2.11. It says this, in whom also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So in other words, I've been changed. I've been set apart, not by the things that I do outwardly, but by my faith in Jesus Christ and who I have been given by him the Holy Spirit. That's the whole idea there, okay? But I think to gloss over that would be not faithful to the text. It says in verse four, now let's continue, right? So we had our little lesson on circumcision. Verse four, never thought you were gonna come to church and hear about that today, right? Look at verse four. Though myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. That was something that was required in the eighth day. That's when you would circumcise your son. So Paul's like, check that box. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Like I'm checking all the boxes, Paul's saying. Verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. We'll share the significance of that. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Remember what I told you to, to really ask yourself, what's Paul warning the church at Philippi before we read this passage of scripture? And I think it's interesting that you don't see him warning them or making reference to what he's going through. Like, I just wanted to give you warning. I'm not sure if I'm going to die tomorrow. I'm not sure if my life's going to be taken from me. Would you pray for me? There would have been absolutely nothing wrong with that. Paul thanks them for their prayers earlier on in this book. We saw that. But what Paul's concern is that he points out in this passage of Scripture is this. Philippians, where are you finding your worth? Where are you finding your worth? And so the title of this message this morning, if you're taking notes, is this, what is it worth? What's it worth? And we'll elaborate on that question. You know, I was thinking to myself, what determines worth? So I was not a business major and didn't, never took economics, but this is what I found about what determines worth. Supply and demand, right? Supply and demand determines worth. You know, it's... It, there's all this demand. Do we have the supply? If the supply is less than the demand, then it drives up the worth, right? Supply and demand. How about this one? Outside influence. Like I'm telling you that this thing is worth something. 
So there's outside influence that plays into that. Nostalgia, right? Well, this certain thing or this certain activity is worth like a lot to me because it brings back memories, right? Nostalgia can determine worth. Knowledge can determine worth. Like I, I see that this thing is worth something. How about affection? Like my, my, my love for it can determine worth. I was, just thought it would be interesting to take quickly a trip back in time and to look at some of the things that previous decades found tremendously worthy. So I thought to myself, what's the top, what was the top travel destination in the 1950s, like early 1950s? Here's what I thought was interesting. Havana, Cuba was like one of the main places that people, like that's where everyone, everybody wanted to go in 1950, obviously before 1959, because that's when Fidel Castro took over Cuba. But some of you maybe lived at that time, you're like, yeah, man, that was what everybody was talking about. So, so like that was the place that was seen as, man, that's the vacation destination. Now think of this, top car of the 1960s. Some of you are car guys, some of you lady, car ladies, anybody? Yeah? So top car of the 1960s was this. This is according to the very trusted, reliable source, Google. 1960, the 1960 Corvette convertible was like, the car, pretty awesome car, 270 horsepower. This is blew me away. You know how much you could buy this car for in 1960? Four grand, four grand. You know what it's worth now? It's in an excellent condition, $74,000. Supply and demand, right? Not a lot of those cars. They didn't make a ton of them, so four grand. Man, I hope you bought it, stuck it in a garage, and didn't touch it, because now you got 74 grand. How about this? The top toy of 1970, this blew me away, was a Nerf ball. <laughs> a Nerf ball. It's blown away. This is, this is literally what the, what the ad was. It was billed as the world's first official indoor ball. Then they would tag it like this. How safe is it? Well, this is what marketing promised. You can't damage lamps or break windows. You can't hurt babies or old people. I'm not making this up. That was, sl- that was the slogan. Can't hurt babies or old people. Buy Nerf. Amazing commercial. This is blew me away. They sold around 4 million of these things in its first year. I'm shocked that that did not exist before 1970. Now you can go in there and we're giving these, you give these things away. And then the last one, I thought the top gadget of the 1980s, sorry if you lived after 1980 because this is like a total history lesson to you. 1980s, I would ask you to guess, but I get a million different answers. Top gadget of the 1980s, so 80 to 89, was the Game Boy. Man, I wanted one of those so bad and I never got one. Shame on my parents. You could buy this thing for 89.99. That was big money in 1980. Here's why I say all that and give those silly things. It's not just to take time away from God's word. It's to, it's to make a point. We put so much worth in the things that are not even intrinsically bad, but we put so much worth in things that are so less worthy than who Jesus Christ is in our relationship with him. See, I want you to understand this idea. I want you to write this idea down. Worth influences worship. See, whatever I perceive to have the most worth will in turn be the object of my worship. Paul says, what does he say in verse one? Rejoice in the Lord. Find your joy in the Lord. The application of that, worship him. But I can't worship the right way if I'm not putting my worth in the right place. See, that affects my stability in life. Some of you are experiencing tremendous instability in life right now, and we need to check our heart as we walk through this text because I promise you, you can chase it back to, you have misplaced worth. I have misplaced worth, and that's affecting my stability 
Spiritual maturity is understanding where your greatest worth is found. Joy is experienced when my greatest worth is put in the right place. And so I think it's interesting when we look at these verses, especially verse 2 through verse 6, Paul mentions some things that often entice us on where to misplace our worth. And I just want to mention them quickly. Did you notice verses 2 and 3? Paul says, look out for the dogs. So I think we're all smart enough in here to know he's not speaking of four-legged animals. Like, be careful, there's some wild dogs in the street. Make sure they're all on a leash. So we know that's not the idea, right? But think about it. What makes a dog dangerous? It's when the dog is not submissive to his master. It's when the dog is wild. That's what makes a dog dangerous. And here's the first thing that I see in verses 2 and 3 that Paul makes warning of that can entice us to misplace our worth, and it's this, my religiosity. These aren't on the screen, so if you want to write them, my religiosity. See, we can put a lot of confidence on the do's, what I do, and put a lot of confidence on what I don't do. You can put a lot of confidence in those things. Like you can be walking in the doors this morning and be like, man, I've never missed a life group. I never miss Sunday worship. Man, I got the whole New Testament memorized. Man, every neighbor that has moved in, I've told them about Jesus. I don't listen to secular music. Can't even imagine the thought. I've never been to an R-rated movie, except for the passion of Jesus Christ. (laughs) And we can find ourselves looking at the things that we are saying yes to and the things that we are saying no to and develop some sort of pious attitude that really communicates through our mindset and our affections that I am putting more worth in what I'm saying yes to and what I'm saying no to than my relationship with Jesus Christ. And one of the things that Paul points out in verses two and three that, that can entice us to misplace our worth is our actually our religiosity. That I can get caught up in thinking that what I do and what I don't do is somehow gaining me brownie points with God and actually has some sort of worth in comparison to what Jesus Christ has done for me. That's dangerous. Here's another thing that Paul mentions in verses 4 and 5. Not just my religiosity, my accomplishments. Did you see what he says? Like, you think you have confidence to boast in what you're doing, you, the dogs? The danger of that type of mentality, wild dogs, it can harm you, that religiosity. He says, you think you have confidence in what you've done? Man, let's put, let's compare our resumes. Paul just plays their game. Let's compare our resume because this is something that was plaguing the early church, You see it mentioned not just in Philippians, you see it mentioned in other epistles as well, where you have this group of Jewish zealots that are giving the idea that it's not just enough to put your faith in Jesus Christ, it's also what you need to do as well, and that what you need to do as well was circumcision. So Paul fights on this all the time, but so he just plays their little game, and he's like, okay, you want to look at your accomplishments? Let's look at mine. That's where he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, man. I was a Pharisee. You want to compare? Let's play that game. Let's compare. But you know what Paul is doing here? Here's what he's doing. He's saying, at the end of the day, my resume, your resume, who cares? It's not about your accomplishments. And I wonder how many of us, our worth is being put in our accomplishments, doesn't even necessarily have to be spiritual. It could be, look at what I've achieved. Look at my position. Look at 
the things that I possess, my accomplishment. It's a danger. It entices us to misplace our worth. And then he says in verse 6, as to righteousness under the law, man, I was blameless. See, there's a danger that my propensities, what I may be tempted with and what I may be not tempted with, how I can use that in a prideful way to say, man, look how my worth is placed on the struggles that I no longer have. And it causes you to actually look down on others who may have struggles different than you. See, that's what was going on. Well, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at what I'm saying no to. Look at what I'm saying yes to. And my propensities, what I'm tempted with and what I'm not tempted with can often even be used at the enemy to cause me to see myself on a higher plane than someone else that I may be even sitting in this room next to. And Paul says, man, under righteousness, under the law, man, I obeyed every single law. I strove, I, you, I was the poster child for that. But we know this as followers of Jesus Christ, but don't we often slip back into it, man? When I play that I'm good, I'm better, it's some moralistic tower of Babel. Remember that Genesis 11 where they build this tower hoping that they can get to God? And I wonder how many of us, maybe you're in this room and you never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you're thinking in yourself, if I can say, if I can do the things that I'm supposed to do and not do the things that I'm not supposed to do and live some moralistic lifestyle that somehow I can earn God's favor and I can earn a relationship with God and you're building a tower that will never never measure up. Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment before almighty God. Listen to me. Don't hear me say this because some of you are like a little shocked. You will never hear me say that being faithful in your church attendance is not important. You better look for another pastor if I say that. Never gonna say that. Never going to say you being faithful and getting plugged into a life group and being faithful in that and experiencing biblical community is not important for your spiritual development. I'll never say that. I'll never say reading your Bible and memorizing scripture isn't extremely important to your growth in the Lord. You being careful of what you watch is not important to your sanctification and being more like Jesus Christ and putting guards over your eyes and what you watch and what you listen to. Those are all amazing things but listen to me, if I'm relying on that to somehow give me brownie points with God or earn something from God, I'm off in my thinking. It's not my religiosity. It's not my accomplishment. It's not my propensities and what I'm tempted with or what I'm not tempted with. That's not where my worth should be placed. And here's what we need to understand this morning, that misplaced worth is this, it's idolatry. If I'm placing worth in anything other greater than my relationship with Jesus Christ, I am practicing idolatry this morning. Idolatry. And Paul's making a very important point here about the importance of worth. So what I want to do this morning and the rest of our time is give you four practical ways we can guard our heart against misplaced worth. How do we make sure our worth is in the right place? So here's the first one, and it's found in verse 7. Would you look at it with me again? I know we already read this passage of Scripture, but I want you to see this. This phrase, Paul says, whatever gain I had. You see that? I mean, I had the religiosity down. I had plenty of accomplishments. Man, I was, I was living a moralistic lifestyle. My propensities were more for good than they were for evil. But whatever gain I had, what does he say? I had counted as loss for the sake of of Christ. What Paul is saying here is what I used to put in the gain column. You, know, you understand this? Every one of us have a gain column and a loss column, and we're always evaluating those things. 
Where's the most gain? Where's the most worth? Where are the things that I can really say no to? Or I really, you know what? At the end of the day, I, I can say no to that and it's not a big deal. No, no, no. We all have a gain column and we have a loss column. And what Paul is saying is, what I've grown in understanding is my gain column has changed. What I used to put in the gain column is now in the loss column. But that only came by him counting. See, that's an interesting word, count, that you see there in verse 7. It has this idea. It means to evaluate and draw a conclusion. Like I'm actually going to take time to evaluate what is true gain and what is true loss. I'm actually going to take time to determine what has worth, ultimate worth, and what does not. That's the idea of count. It's an accounting term. So here's the first way that I guide or guard my heart against misplaced worth. Number one, I answer the question, this question, what are the things that cause my greatest worth to be misplaced? I got to evaluate. God, what are the things in my life that caused my greatest worth to be misplaced because Paul is looking at his life and he's saying the things that I used to think were gain are now looked at as loss and the things that I thought were losing are actually now looked at as the most worth and the most gain that I could imagine. But that only happens as he evaluates his life. He's counted, that's that word. And I think for many of us, including myself, I can get caught up in putting all the worth in my conversion. Here's what I mean by that. I can put all my worth that, man, I'm a child of God because I remember that time when God got a hold of my heart and I realized my sin and I realized that there's nothing that I could do in and of myself to ever warrant a relationship with God, that the wages of sin was death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ my Lord. Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his love to me that in the midst of my sin, Christ died for me. That I remember, that I remember that time where I raised my hand in a church service, in a revival meeting, and, and I was in a, in a small group setting, I was listening on the radio, whatever it was, where, where God got a hold of my heart and I realized that I needed him, and it wasn't about what I've done, but it's about what Jesus Christ has done for me. And so we put most of our weight in our conversion when we look at our walk with the Lord. And I'm not saying that there's not tremendous weight in that. But I think sometimes we can put all of our weight in our conversion to the detriment of how am I living life today? How am I living my life today? How am I showing that my greatest worth is found in Jesus Christ? Well, let me tell you, I remember when I was a kid and I put my faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, I got that. Praise God for that. No, no, no. But, but, but how are you pressing into that? How are you growing in that? See, I think often we don't put enough worth in that. We don't put enough worth in what does it actually, what am I actually looking at in my growth with the Lord, because you know what that requires? It requires dying to self moments. Remember Philippians 1.21? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And our Christian walk is not just determined by a date or a time that I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. But my walk with the Lord is also determined by how I am dying to self every day in my walk with the Lord. How am I counting today? How are you counting today? And that only happens by me taking time and actually asking, man, what are the things that could be motivating me to misplace my worth? See, we love we love the worship experience, right? We love to come and to sing, and I think that's amazing. We love those types of things. But what I'm concerned about in our walks with the Lord is we're just looking for the next experience in our life. When's the next high? When can I get the next high? When can I, can I get the next emotional high? And listen, emotions are God-given. Don't hear me say something that I'm not. But what's interesting is when you look at the God's word, 
whether it's Paul or you look at in the Old Testament and you look at, at these characters in the Bible, they're not as much pursuing an experience as much as they are pursuing the Lord. The Lord. Because here's the reality. When I'm pursuing the Lord and finding my worth in Him, the experiences come. Let me just give you some examples. Psalm 42.1, just listen to this. David says this, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. Like you look at that, man, that's so much more than a screensaver on your computer, that verse. Like David's in pain here. David's struggling here. That's the context. He's crying and what he's wanting to say is, I want to know and grow in my understanding and worth of who you are. Lord, I am at a place where what I want most is you. You. Not an experience. You. It says it again in Psalm 27.4. One thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. One thing, one thing as I've counted to use the word Paul uses, one thing have I seen that has the greatest worth. It's not just about when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's how you're growing in your all-consuming passion for the Lord. So we got to answer the question, what are the things that cause my greatest worth to be misplaced? I think an awesome indicator, don't have to do this, I'm not going to ask you to do this, just, I don't know how you keep your calendar, some of you may have a, a calendar that's actually, you write in a pencil, my calendar is on my phone, and if you just passed your phone or your calendar physically, to the person next to you and they look through all the things that you have on your calendar, I wonder if they would be able to, to determine, man, that person, they got a lot going on, but their greatest worth is in Jesus. So you don't need to pass your calendar to someone else. You can think of that right now. Just think about it. In the last month, would someone be able to say, better yet, would I be able to say, that even though I've had a busy and crazy month, that my greatest worth was still in my relationship with Jesus Christ. So much so, now we're going to step on some toes. So much so, that if it was me choosing my relationship with Jesus Christ and keeping him first and foremost over my kids' sporting events, over my kids' activities, over my faithfulness to the house of the Lord, over how I use my finances, and on and on and on. If there was a choice, do this or this, what would I truly choose? Because some of us in this room, the choices that we have made communicate that our greatest worth has been misplaced. And the only way that we can keep that in check is an honest accounting before God on a daily basis and answering the question every day, Lord, I got to look at the gain column and I got to look at the loss column in my mind and in my life. And I need to answer the question, Lord, are there things that are causing me to misplace my worth? I've had to do that. And my occupation is actually a pastor. Okay, this has gotten out of whack. So I need to get back to these things. I've had to do that. Every one of us has to do that. It takes a diligence. And Paul says, whatever gain I had, I mean, I've counted. I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And if you notice... I don't know if this is true of you, but it's usually the morally neutral temptations that get at me. 
Like I'm probably not going to walk in a parking lot and someone's going to offer me heroin and I'm going to be like, man, I really want that. And if that's you, I, I, don't, I don't say that. Hear me on that. I don't say that to make light of that. But for me, it's more the moral neutral things. Kids sports, ESPN, fantasy football, TV, movies, appointments, vacations, that can, it's the morally neutral things for me that can easily creep in. And as Song of Solomon says, it's the little foxes that get into the vineyard. So number one, what's the most, what's the, what's a practical way to guard our hearts against misplaced worth? Answer the question, what are the things that cause my greatest worth to be misplaced? And listen to me, you're going to discuss this in life group. I want you to discuss this with your spouse, with your friend, with your mom or dad. These are good questions to ask. Here's the second way. Assess what things encourage me to find my greatest worth in Christ. Like not, not just the things that are actually causing me to misplace it, but what are the things that are actually, that actually encourage me? To be reminded of that my greatest worth is found in Jesus Christ. Look at what it says in verse 8 again. Paul uses that word again twice here. I count everything as lost. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing. That word knowing has the idea of not just knowledge, but, but actually having an intimate, life-giving, deep love for the Lord. That I'm growing in that knowing, that relationship, that intimate, deep love that I'm experiencing. Like I'm counting everything as loss as I compare it to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Look at what he says. And I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. What Paul's saying here is I consider everything else other than my relationship with Jesus Christ and the things that point me to him, they're all negotiable. Nothing's off the table. Absolutely everything in comparison to this is losable. And he uses the word rubbish to get across that idea. See, I'm sure the translators, when they were translating this word, they're like, Ugh, what do we write down here? Like, I know we're not supposed to swear. What do I write down here? Okay, we're good with rubbish. <laughs> but actually, that word literally has this idea. Garbage, dung, excrement. To put it in our context, you can have enough imagination on what that word means. Right? I don't have to, everybody there? Do I have to go on? Okay. So here's what Paul is saying. The best of our best without Jesus looks like a pile of blank compared to him. Hear me on that. That me pursuing things greater than my relationship with the Lord amounts to blank. Paul uses that word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to get the church's attention. And we need to assess, man, what are... What are the things that are encouraging me to find my greatest worth? Because I can't answer the question, what are the things that are causing my worth to be misplaced if I'm not also assessing, Lord, what are the things that I find in my life that actually stir my affections to find my greatest worth in you? Psalm 63, one through five, just listen to this quickly. Another Psalm of David, because the Psalms are such a great picture of this idea, the surpassing worth of knowing intimate relationship, deep love for the Lord. Just write this reference down in your margin, in your Bible. Oh God, you're my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for 
you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you. Not my accomplishments, not my religiosity, not my propensities, not my, my, my financial worth, not how my kids are doing, not how my marriage is, not how my week has been. No, 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 my worth's not ultimately found in that. I seek you. In the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, for your steadfast love is better than life. Like vacations are great, days off are great. Seeing my kid play well in a sporting event, man, that's great. All those things are great, but no, no, no. Your steadfast love, those things aren't better than life. Your love is better than life and my lips will praise you and so I will bless you as long as I live. Your name I will lift up my hands. Your name I will lift up my hands. Not my favorite sports team, greater than lifting up my hands for you. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Here's what David is crying out. And it's the same thing that Paul is stressing. God, I have to have you. That's it. You. Greater than any other thing. You. So, Think about it. What encourages you? You're like, well, obviously we know what God's word says, the Bible, right? We need, to be, we need to be in God's word every day. That's how God communicates with us. We have a phrase here, right at harvest, when God's word is open, God's mouth is open. I need to pray. I need to spend time in the Lord with the Lord because that's how I communicate to God. I need to worship him. But once again, we've established worship is so much more than five songs or six songs in a worship service. So that is worship. That's not where it stops. Worship also continues when I walk out of these doors Monday through Saturday. Yes, I need to be in God's word. I need to be praying to the Lord. I need to be worshiping him with my lifestyle. Those things are necessary to stir my affections. But what I'm talking about are what are the things that are nuances to you that may be different from someone else? For me, I love to listen to worship music in my car, in my headphones. It stirs my affections for the Lord. But some of you may be like, man, that's not the greatest thing for me that stirs my affections. Okay, great. Find out what it is. Maybe some of you, it's like, man, it's just getting alone in the same location every day and, and, and getting alone in that same place. And maybe it's outside in your backyard or on your porch or deck or whatever it is. Man, that's what, that when I do that, it stirs my affections for the Lord. Awesome. Maybe it's like, man, I just need to journal and, and I need to journal out my prayers and I need, to, I need to see. It's a great way for me to literally put the gain column and put the loss column. Great. Maybe it's like, man, I, I, instead, of, instead of opening up my Bible, I, I pull it out on my iPad or my tablet and I, and I highlight and I'm able to make notes. Great, great. See, what I'm saying is here is we need to assess what are the things in my life that I have seen that stir my affections for the Lord. And there are some non-negotiables. You being in biblical community is a non-negotiable. You making being faithful in church attendance is a non-negotiable, but I'm talking about the things that are just like, man, these things stir my heart. Maybe being on time to church might stir your heart. Whatever it is, I'm, being, I'm not being silly about that, but whatever, what is it? See, that's... It's so important that we're evaluating in our life, God, what are the things that are encouraging me to find my greatest worth so that I can, I can grow and count everything as loss in comparison to you? What are the things that you need to ask yourself that you need to eliminate or you need to scale back because it's actually causing you to misplace your worth? What are the things that you need to get back to that you've seen that kind of encourage you to place your worth in the right place, which is in your relationship with Jesus Christ, believing in him? Growing in him, belonging to him, 
becoming more like him. Here's the third practical way, and we're almost done. And I don't need to spend a lot of time on this because I already have in the things that cause us to misplace our worth in verses two through six. But here's the third way. Avoid comparing my routine to someone else. See, verse nine, Paul says again, we're found in him. The reason why I have a relationship with the Lord this morning is because I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ in the perfection that he's accomplished for me through his life, death, and resurrection. Not the good that I've done. I'm found in him. Look at what it says. Not having a righteousness of my own. It's not the good that I have done. It's not me falling into the trap that yes, Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior, and it's not a work of works of righteousness that I've done, but it's according to his mercy that he saved me. But don't you find yourself tripping back into the, to the routine of, man, I, I gotta earn something from God. Gotta make sure he knows that he didn't make a mistake saving me. No, no, no. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And listen to me, I have to guard myself against lifting up my routine and what stirs my affections for the Lord over someone else's. Can't believe she does that. That doesn't stir my affections and it sure shouldn't stir hers. No, 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 no. When we do that, we're falling back into religiosity. See, if that's you today, you've actually placed your worth more in the things that you are doing and saying yes to and the things that you're saying no to more than your relationship with the Lord. Don't lose that. See, I need to avoid comparing my routine to someone else. What stirs me to get into God's word? What stirs me? to get into prayer. What stirs me to worship him? Yes, it's the Holy Spirit, but what are those environments that stir those affections and help those affections? Hear me on this. This is not me stirring it up myself. No, no, no. What are the things that I need to say no to in my life that actually hinder the Holy Spirit from working in my life? Avoid comparing your routine to someone else. Here's the last thing. It's found in verses 10 and 11. Can you see it again? Look at it again. It says that I may know him. We explain what know means. That deep love, affection, growing affection for Jesus. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That I might grow in my relationship with Jesus. And as growing in in my relationship with Jesus I begin to see the power of the Holy Spirit that's only possible through the resurrection working in me. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Look at this. We don't like this phrase, and may share his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, and any means possible doesn't mean, Paul's not like, man, I'm not sure I'm going to make it to heaven. It's literally this idea, there's this humility that, Lord, I don't deserve this, but God, you graciously give it to me through Jesus Christ. I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Lord, I'm so thankful that though I don't deserve it, I know where I'm going. See, here's the last way that we guard our heart against misplaced worth. We acknowledge that rough waters are a means to grow my worth in Christ. We've got to see it as that. As painful as they are, as hard as they are, They are those times that prune away, as we've talked about before, that prune away even some of the things that were like, seriously, God, that was producing fruit. Or maybe God, in his mercy, takes away the thing that we have been misplacing our worth in, and he takes it away. But in God doing that, even though it doesn't seem loving, and even though in the moment it doesn't seem gracious, what the Lord is doing is He's saying, I want you to understand that I'm your greatest worth. And I've found in my life that nothing does that as much as when I go through suffering. When I go through rough waters, that I'm like, man, God, I've put way too much in the gain column. And thinking that this is gain, and actually it's loss. 
God, I've switched those around and what your word says is gain and what your word says is loss. God, I've switched those. And in those times of suffering, it recalibrates me to realize, no, 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 Lord, my greatest worth is you. I've misplaced it. Listen to me. Jesus is where your worth is found. Jesus is where your worth is found. He sets you free. He's given you life. He's given you victory through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is where our worth is to be found. And when our worth is in the right place, our worship will be to the right person. We're going to take part in communion as a response. And we're going to sing this this song that probably is familiar to many, maybe not to some, but I would venture to say to many, And I actually want to read these lyrics because we're about to go into a holy time. We're about to go into a time where we're going to take this cup that has bread in the top section and you'll find a place where the top part you can peel off and take that bread and then there's another tab that you can peel and take the juice when we take that time. But we're about to take part in something that represents the greatest gift that was ever given. We're about to take part in the thing that has the greatest worth. And I don't believe that we can take part in this without examining our heart and saying, Lord, let me answer the question, where have I misplaced my worth? God, let me confess that. I've counted the things that are gained that are actually lost. God, forgive me for getting away from the routines that I know stir my affections to you. God, I've gotten away from those. Maybe you've gotten caught up in some sort of legalism and looking down on someone else and thinking that you're something better and somehow God is like giving you an extra star on your chest because of certain things. And we need to confess that religiosity is sin. And we need to confess as sin that we're not viewing suffering even in the midst of the pain and we're not approaching it and saying, Lord, how are you wanting to teach me, Lord, that my greatest worth is found in you? I don't know what it is, but I promise you the Holy Spirit is showing you. See, this song says this, Christ is my reward and all of my devotion. Now, there's nothing in this world that could ever satisfy Through every trial, my soul will sing. No turning back, I've been set free. Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you. Everything that I need. Christ is my all in all, the joy of my salvation and the hope that will never fail. Heaven is our home. Through every storm, my soul will sing, Jesus is here. To God be the glory.